Welcome to the Center for a New American Securities NATSEC Women podcast series. Last year, we started a project on getting new audiences to think and talk about issues of gender, inclusivity, and national security. Schedule an event with gender in the title, and you can guarantee it is 95% women talking to other women in the audience about women's issues. So we tried other ways. Some audiences were receptive, some weren't. Some were frustrated we were making a big deal out of a topic they thought was closed. Asked and answered, move on. But among the women we know, it didn't feel nearly as clear cut. So we're bringing you right to the source one-on-one candid conversations with women in national security about their careers, their experience, their advice, and their lessons. Here's their stories. I'm Lauren Schulman, a senior fellow here at CNAS, and here with Kate Kidder and Julie Smith to give a bit of background about how we got into launching this Women in National Security podcast series. We've been doing so much interviewing of other women in this that I felt like a lot of the origin story of how did we end up in this really, what has become a really amazing project has been left behind a little bit. And I think a lot of that discussion is really critical to why this is an issue that's gaining so much attention, both in the media, in the internal community and elsewhere, and frankly needs more attention. So Kate, I want to start with you just to give us some background on how did we get here? Why did we launch the Women in National Security podcast and some of the other projects that we've done more broadly in this space? So over the past few years, CNAS has really been trying to take the lead in doing a lot of data-centric research on women in the military um, and women in the national security uh, sector writ large. And we focus a lot on the data and what the data tells us. So we see a real picture of more and more women entering undergraduate education and more and more women entering some of the most elite policy schools and coming through the different pathways to government service. So we see a lot of women at the entry stage, but we don't necessarily see them attaining the top ranks uh, throughout the government. And so we also started to realize that we needed a bit more of a conversation and that anecdotes are not data, but that they can really shape and form the way that we're thinking and framing our research. Um, And it became really important as well to humanize the story of the different um, decisions that women make in their career paths and also some of the opportunities and challenges that they're finding at a systemic level. Your point about anecdotes is really important to me because I feel like one of the messages that we got back when we initially started our Women in National Security effort was don't talk from women saying, don't talk about me, talk to me. The story is more complicated than what you're actually portraying. There's not a homogenous population of women and they don't have a homogenous set of experiences. What are some of the ways that we have used to get at this? And how we, and we did our survey, we've had some of our events. Can you give a little background? Yeah, so we have reached out to a number of women spanning the, the career spectrum. So we talked to female interns, mid-career individuals, and, and women who have already attained senior leadership positions. Um, and we, we, we launched a survey, we launched two surveys, one for women looking at what are some of the real challenges that they're facing, whether they're external challenges, 
changes like the structure of childcare arrangements or whether it's, you know, institutional biases against hiring women or uh, if they're more internal roadblocks as well, which we did find, did hear from a number of women. We also reached out to men in the field to see what their experiences have been like, particularly when it came to issues of work-life balance, which we frequently hear um, framed as a woman's issue. And so trying to get at, you know, what is required of a career in national security? What demands does that put on an individual professionally and personally? And where might we be able to find better human capital management strategies moving forward that are not even necessarily focus at women, but that enable everyone to participate at higher levels. Okay, so Julie, you've written quite a bit about your experience as a woman in national security and, and some of the, the internal dynamics and struggles that you have faced and potentially still face as, as we all do. Um, could you speak a little bit to your experience and what you think some of the big challenges have been for yourself and perhaps other women in the field? Well, I think when I was younger, when I was first entering the field of national security, I had this impression that once I got past the first few years, I would somehow surpass or just leave all of these challenges tied to being a woman working in national security in the rearview mirror, that they would get easier, not harder, and that some of the things that I was struggling with in my 20s and 30s would fade away in my 40s and 50s and beyond. And what I've come to find out so far, I mean, we'll see what the coming years look like, but that some of those challenges have in fact gotten harder. And I would particularly note you know, on the work-life balance front, it has been much harder now as a mother of two, being a woman in national security than it was as a single person as a woman in national security in some ways. I continue to struggle with the uh, pride that I have in the work that I've done in national security, but also how hesitant I can feel at times to really continue to take the lead on projects or going for new promotions or new job opportunities because of the burdens that I would feel on the home front. And so that ambivalence I feel sometimes about wanting to contribute and make a difference, but also ensuring that it doesn't come at great sacrifice on the home front, that ambivalence is real and is with me today and I think will continue to be with me for many, many years. And I think if there's one lesson that I would give to my younger self, it's to understand that being a woman working in the field of national security will carry with it challenges different sometimes, but through all of the your, your career, your entire career, that it takes different shapes and forms, but that the challenges appear to be ever present. And I think that's what's probably surprised me the most. But I don't know, Lauren, how do you look at it if you had to give some advice to your younger self looking back at those early years when you were first jumping in and throwing your hat in the ring for some of these national security jobs? I guess what would you what would you tell yourself now looking back? You know, it's interesting when I was first starting out in government even amidst some fairly obvious and blatant misogyny, just to really did not have a perception of myself as a woman in national security. I was a person working in national security who, when I think back on it, had some really kind of crazy experiences, like a, an assistant secretary who told me that I was only hired because I was a pretty little girl, but not that pretty. And um, men who would tell me to smile less when I was briefing and things like that. But at the time, I didn't really attribute that to being a woman, I just attributed that to the Department of Defense is a strange place. But, and as I think about it now, honestly, I, I think I might've told myself 
remember that you are a woman and that the dynamic around you is, uh, is going to be different for, in your experience and some, a lot of your peers, uh, and to assert yourself differently, to recognize that when you are being treated badly because of your gender, I, I think that I, brushed so much of that off when I was younger because I didn't want it to matter. Um, I very desperately did not want it to matter. And, and now that years on in my career, I, I realized that like it, it kind of did. And maybe it didn't matter as much to me personally, but I think it mattered to other women who were my peers who were going through the same thing. And being more supportive of people who were experiencing, uh, frankly, a lot of prejudice against them for being in this field in the Department of Defense might have made some difference in terms of how we were supporting one another, but also in terms of how we were, um, you know, raising a bit of awareness to our, some of our peers about, like, what we found acceptable and what was not. Um, I, I, I think about this now in terms of, like, I, I really, in a lot of ways, resent having to do this project, oddly. Like, I, I love this project, but at the same time, the fact that we're having to have discussions today that I felt like, to your point, should have been dealt with years ago feels incredibly frustrating in the sense that I think that so many of our, our peers think that the issue of women in national security is dealt with, uh, that women are ably represented and don't need to have a different kind of leg up in any way. Uh, and the, in doing the interviews in the survey, we just see that that is just not the experience of a lot of other women. And I, I really struggle with the the, the balance of like not wanting to focus on this as an issue versus it needing so much focus in a way that I hadn't had really no realization of. And Kate, I know that's something that has kind of affected you throughout this. And I wonder if you talk a little about that. Yeah, I think in, in the course of doing the research and interviewing and meeting with um, women, particularly young women in the field, I found myself feeling a bit naive in that and, and grateful for the experiences that I have had. Um, there are a number of issues that I thought were, you know, relegated to the era of madmen, right? So sexual harassment in the workplace. Um, I thought we were done with that and that the real challenge was, okay, there are, there are obviously gaps to women moving from the bottom rung to the top rung. How do we deal with those professional issues? But I assumed that broader issues of open discrimination and or um, harassment were done with. Um, and what we found was that that's not the case. Now, that's certainly not the area of where we want to focus all of our energies. And, and again, with Lauren thinking, you know, having to say out loud that these are issues, it, it is frustrating when you think it is 2017 and we should be having a broader conversation about how to get the best talent to succeed um, and, and not necessarily dealing with issues that I thought were long laid to rest. Another thing is, I look forward to the day when, you know, we're not looking at women in national security as a focal point, um, but we're saying, hey, you know, here's the best person on the South China Sea issue or some military personnel issue or civil military relations. And it has nothing to do with the fact that this is the best female expert on this particular topic. And we're just saying this is the best expert on the topic, but we may be a bit off from that. Just based on the reaction we've had to date to the project, we've had a lot of positive feedback, but I think there's been some disbelief or just some curiosity about why CIS is doing this. And there is this sense, 
particularly in think tank land that you encounter some of my peers saying, we do get the best experts. We're, we're there, Kate, would be their response to you. Um, but I think based on the interactions that we've had, either through the survey data or through the meetings that we've convened here at CNAS among women, particularly the mid-career level, we're actually finding that's not the case. Um, and we're seeing far too many events being organized where almost virtually everybody at the event is a man. And then you get the occasional email from someone that feels compelled to get that woman at the last minute, but it's the day before and they're shocked, shocked that they can't find a woman to kind of stand in often as moderator at the last minute. So yes, we've made progress, but I think what we're all saying here is there's so much more work to be done to really ensure that the women that are coming in at a steady pace at that entry level level uh, are in fact staying the course and are finding ways to succeed the right opportunities, the right mentors and support that they need to guarantee that they don't take that exit ramp uh, at say age 35 or somewhere around that mid-career position because we do see the numbers level out in terms of entry level but they're not sticking around at the mid-career level. So one of the questions that we asked in our survey was about uh, some of the examples of progress that we have seen and in women in national security, whether that be more women in the top of the ranks, uh, more discussion about the benefits of maternity and paternity leave, uh, women in the service, um, and whether or not those are actual progress or they were more superficial steps that uh, have been made in this field. And the reaction was really interesting. They uh, Several women, you know, Said that this is great. We've made a lot of progress. Um, others commented that these are things that, unless they get serious leadership attention, will die on the vine or are, are superficial at best in, in terms of you know how we talk about you know maternity paternity leave is great, but if you you know taking it is uh, not something that's okay. Or women in, this, in the military is great, but you know nobody really thinks women will actually succeed at senior leadership levels. But I'm curious for both Kate and Julie, what are things that either men or women could do to advance the cause of having more women be move to more senior positions in national security? Uh, small things, big things, big policies, small behavioral changes. You know, what would be the one thing that you would recommend? So I think uh, in the military context, this is really where it becomes important that combat roles were open to women. It was interesting doing a number of interviews with female flag and general officers and asking them, do they ever feel discriminated against because they were a, a woman in their particular branch or service? And almost every single one of them, um, and we talked to uh, a few of the women who've attained the rank of four-star, they would respond that they never felt discriminated against because they were women. They felt discriminated against because they were a logistician or they were a support service. And that, oh, by the way, their male counterparts in the same type of MOS felt the same way they, they did, that they were discriminated against because they weren't an infantryman or they didn't have a ranger tab. Um, and so I think now this will take a generation or longer to see young women rise through the ranks in, in these uh, combat MOSs. But I think this is one way of not just changing a policy, but also changing the face of what it means to be a military service member and not just someone in uniform, but the epitome of, you know, the ranger tab or serving in an infantry unit. I think there's a pretty long list of what 
you could see men do in leadership roles in particular. And I hope that over time we will see more men at least recognize the bottom line is that there's unconscious bias. Uh, and you have to acknowledge that. That's the starting point. Uh, and then from there, it's ensuring that you're putting policies in place that ensures that they'll be permanent. Um, you often see in government someone who comes into a leadership role and dedicates a significant amount of his or her time to human capital issues, which can then take us to things like maternity and paternity leave. But then the next guy or gal that comes in determines that they're much more focused on just the day-to-day -day grind and they don't feel like they've got the interest or the bandwidth to focus on human capital. And you find some of that stuff wash away. And I've witnessed that firsthand. And I think it's important for male and female leaders to do what they can to set standards and precedents so that their successors will come in and be able to carry on with some of those policies. Uh, again, I think the trend line is generally positive as you see new leaders come into these roles, but it isn't guaranteed. And you have to come in with the sense that you're building something. You have to lay a foundation upon which others then can add their own uh, floor to the building. Um, so particularly on work-life balance, you know, maybe you put those policies in place, but then you try to set standards that the expectation is there that people take those opportunities or, or take that paternity or maternity leave or use the, the pumping room or whatever it is and that it's okay to leave your desk to go do something like that. But it's the inconsistency where we've got real problems where a change in leadership, sometimes even within the same administration, can lead to significant changes. Uh, one policy that you think is laid in concrete then turns out to just fall away uh, a year or two later. I think, too, there's a lot that individuals in the middle management positions can do. So it takes an incredible amount of self-awareness. But, you know, if you read any Harvard Business Review management piece, it'll talk about how the, you know, find someone whose skill set uh, complements your own. It doesn't replicate it. And I think if you start managing differently and finding that you're building your team by looking for complementary assets, it moves a little bit away from this, you know, ducks pick ducks phenomenon mm -hmm. where you end up with, you know, the, the senior manager, the middle manager, and, and the staff are all looking the same, whether that's, you know, gender or ethnicity. And it, it benefits the team writ large to have more perspectives. In doing this project, we've had a lot of people approach us with their different ideas and approaches to creating more diversity in the workplace. And one of the ones that I, I loved that was given to us was stop assuming that your workplace is a meritocracy. It's not. Because exactly what Kate said, you are hiring your, your clone, your twin, the people, person who is just like you. And that's fine. People do that. But recognize that that's happening and start hiring people who don't think, look, or act like you in any way. Then you may start get closer, getting closer to a meritocracy, but you're not doing one right now. So I remember when we convened a group of young women here at CNIS a couple months back, we collected uh, a whole range of challenges and issues from that group. And one of the things that came up, it doesn't surprise me, is the ever-famous imposter syndrome, where women will often pull 
pull themselves out of the running for, say, a promotion or some fellowship or some opportunity because of the 10 things that you have to have to qualify. Maybe they have six and they then determine quietly on their own that that's not enough. We find uh, evidence of men looking at a list of 10, determining they have six and determining that that's a good way for them to go forward and apply for that uh, opportunity. So I guess one of the questions I'd have for both of you guys is, do you ever encounter imposter syndrome or have you when you've been working in policy? I want to say not if not every hour, then certainly every day. <laughs> Uh, and, and I say that as like somebody who, you know, probably on the surface, I have seemed to be a, a fairly successful person in foreign policy. But I remember walking out of a meeting last week uh, um, with a bunch of former defense experts and current defense officials. And somebody had directly asked me a question that was about my personal experience in, in government and even answering a question that was based on like a policy that I had helped manage run my all by myself uh, and giving my personal experience on it for hours afterward, just thinking, oh, I don't think I answered that very well. I don't know if I knew what I was talking about, where I was the only person in the room who could have answered it. I say this not to say that, not to offer advice on uh, how to not have imposter syndrome, but just to say that it's there and it deserves maybe a minute of your time before you say, okay, voice, shut up and move on uh, because it, it continues to dominate things that should not in my life. Yeah, I feel the same way, um, particularly when it comes to whether it's my writing or a speaking engagement where I'll think, oh gosh, I am not I am not the best person to speak on this or I'm underqualified in one way or another. And I remember telling this to a woman who's much senior to me who said, oh yes, that feeling, I still feel that. Um, and so I took that as both hopeful in that, okay, this maybe is just inherent and I shouldn't be surprised when I experience it and also a bit dreadful in that okay this never goes away does it um so I think uh you know like Lauren said you kind of just have to push through and also I mean the reality is that we do know our stuff and I I do know where the line is you know I think um we, we do a disservice if we say lean in and then we don't prepare people to lean in um, or to be at the table. And so it's, it's finding that balance of, okay, you, you know this stuff um, and that is why you're being asked to sit at the table. So sit at the table and share what you, what you do know. So looking back on your career, and, and we have noticed a, a number of challenges that come with being a woman in national security, but have either of you experienced situations where you really felt like it was an asset, um, whether it's you bring a different perspective to the table or, um, you know, even looking at things through a different lens? So part of me wants to say that there, there's really no difference of that, you know, being a woman who is an expert in national security offers the same sort of benefits as a man who is an expert. But at the same time, I am 100% positive that no men in my experience would have asked about uh, the you know, gender violence or violence against women in various uh, regional scenarios that I talked about when I was in government. But women the one, were the ones who was asking. These were important issues. They were indicators of other things that were going on in a country and issues that needed to be dealt with. So until we have more men who are sensitive to that, I think that matters a lot. Uh, the other dynamic where I think it's frankly helped a lot is in working with counterparts. Um, 
I have been able to form much stronger relationships when it's a group of 90% men and 10% women with another group of 90% and 10% women. The women in two delegations or in two working groups were able to, frankly, get a lot more done because they recognized the sort of strange situation that they were in. And so... I don't necessarily subscribe to that. If women are running the world, it's going to be a more peaceful place. But I do think that having more gender representation means that we're going to have a better run process and a better number of perspectives at the table. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, I, I, I too hesitate to uh, stress a big difference uh, in terms of performance, but I do think there's a diversity of perspectives. I think women can sometimes ask a different set of questions, irrespective of what the actual issue is that's being discussed. And I also think sometimes you encounter women that just have a different level of emotional intelligence. Um, sometimes you encounter women that have their antenna up in unique ways. I've learned from other women in this regard. I've also learned from men who have incredible emotional intelligence, um, former mentors and bosses of mine. But I do feel like sometimes the scales tip towards just women having, I don't know what you would call it, kind of this comprehensive view where you see, um, I don't know, an array of perspectives. So I guess when you're dealing with some of the most complicated, complex national security challenges, the bottom line is whether it's a man or a woman, you want to have a diversity of views and a diversity of approaches and a diversity of experiences. And the best way to do that is really to ensure, as Lauren said, that the people sitting around the table haven't all graduated from the same school, aren't all the same gender, and all did the same first job. And uh, that's important. And I saw many times in government where that worked to our advantage. And I saw many times in government where you look around the sit room and you think, boy, we are not really hitting it out of the park here in terms of a real diversity of perspective. Uh, so yeah, I do think it can matter, but I'd hate to, yeah, I, I, I hesitate to overemphasize it. This is one of the things came, coming out of the, um, the analyst or the engineer that was fired at Google mm -hmm. for basically stating that men and women have different biological differences in their in their brain and what they're they're good at, and there's a lot of scientific controversy around like what the assertions that he was making there, and I think it brought up a lot of very difficult conversations for people who want to very firmly do believe that women bring a different perspective, but perspective is not capability. Perspective is not brain power. Perspective is not, I can be a better engineer than you because I'm a woman or not. I think that it's how we use some of those experiences uh, or use some of the, the pigeonholes that I think society has placed us in, in a lot of ways that really gives a different take on things that men won't necessarily have. And maybe that will change 20 years from now, but that's the case that we're at right now. Right. It's not deterministic. I think for me personally and professionally, at times it's been a real asset when, you know, I frequently am the only woman in the room talking about the same substance that everyone else is talking about. And there have been instances where I feel as though people remembered what I said because I was the person in the room who stuck out like a sore thumb. Well, thank you guys so much for coming in and chat about why did we start this podcast series? Where is it going? And I look forward to continuing it in the future.